Welcome to Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia. Today's episode is a talk given by Church of the Advent member, Dale Brown. As we continue our journey through the season of Epiphany, I asked my children on the way in what, uh, what season we're in. I wanted them to, to remember what season we actually find ourselves in. None of them could remember. Some said we're in Lent. Um, others said, is it Easter? Um, some were wondering if we're back at Christmas time because I think they just wanted more presents. No, we're in the season of Epiphany. And we, we haven't journeyed out of Epiphany yet. And there's a good reason why. Because the season of Epiphany in the church, which follows Christmas, which fo- you know follows Advent and Christmas, and we find ourselves here, is a time of sitting with an amazing reality. It's the reality that we have to be confronted with, I think, year after year, and that is that Jesus Christ is the manifestation of God in the world and in the kingdom. The epiphany is the coming of God in flesh and the manifestation of that reality to the whole world. So we, we looked back a few weeks ago at the Magi coming from the east to worship the newborn child, the Christ, coming from far off to see this wonder of a new king, a new Messiah, and yes, God himself born in the world. A couple weeks ago, we've heard about the wedding feast of Cana. And the first miracle that Jesus did, even before he started his ministry. And in uh, the lectionary, there there is another feast that falls, um, another gospel uh, that should be read and thought about, and it's something that actually takes prominence in the Eastern in our in the Eastern liturgy. Um, and that is the baptism of Christ, where Christ goes into the Jordan River, and the heavens open. And God the Father says, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. The Holy Spirit descends on Christ. And there before the entire community that's gathered outside listening to, the, to John the Baptist preaching, the Trinity is revealed to the world with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit right there manifested in the world. So Epiphany is a big deal. It's about us remembering what we really believe, what we say in our creed. Every week when we pray the Nicene Creed, and earlier this week I sat down and the kids and I had a conversation about the prayers that we pray before we do our homeschool. We talked about Arius because there's we our patron saint of our homeschool group is Saint Ambrose, and one of the prayers that's prayed is you know that he defended against the errors of Arius, not Uriel, as my daughter thought for a little while. So it was the heresy of Uriel. No, not Uriel, Arius. Uh, Almost said Ariel. And how Arius taught that Jesus Christ wasn't God, that he was less than God but more than man. And yet Ambrose and St. Nicholas and all the fathers of the church, St. Athanasius, confronted Arius and those heresies and said, no, we believe that Jesus is God from God, light from light, true God from true God. That Jesus really was God in the flesh. 
And so this is the season of Epiphany. This is what we come back to. And I think it's good for us to always come back to this at the beginning of the year. You know, Advent for us in the Western Church kind of is the beginning of the calendar. And so we come back to this fundamental reality that we really do believe this. We really should believe this. A marvel, a great thing has happened in the world. God has broken into the world and has begun to set things to rights. That's what we believe. And so we continue on this week. Now, so I don't keep you here more than a couple hours. Um, we're going to have to do some business if we want to understand why this passage of Scripture is a part of the Epiphany season. Obviously, it's an important part. Matthew wants to tell us these stories. Jesus comes down the mountain, and he encounters two people when he comes down the mountain. One is a child of Israel, a leper, who's an outcast, diseased, set aside, forgotten, ostracized, considered unclean, and Jesus heals him. The other is a Roman centurion, a Gentile, not just a Gentile. To be a Gentile back then was bad enough. But he was a Roman centurion. He was part of the occupying powers that are occupying Israel, that are laying siege to the, uh, what Israel would consider to be the holy city of God, Jerusalem. These are the invaders, the ones who are, have a heavy yoke of burden on the Jewish people inside Jerusalem. And yet Jesus encounters him. But where do these stories fit in to Epiphany? Where do, why did these come into our lectionary at this point of the season? Well, we got to go do some business, and if you bear with me, I'm going to start in Exodus, and I'm going to bring you back to Matthew. Because we have to understand one thing about Matthew. When Matthew is writing his gospel, he's writing, as some said, he's writing, at, like, he's writing the Torah again. He's telling the story of the Torah once again. And so we have to go back to the Torah. We have to go back to Exodus to understand some things about what Matthew is going to be doing here when we get to chapter 8. You see, the children and I have been reading Exodus in homeschool group. We've been studying it. And so they should know this very well. What is the story of Exodus? Moses comes and he he's called by God and he leads the children of Israel out of Egypt with some mighty miraculous things happening. They enjoyed this, this, the talks of staffs being thrown down and turned into serpents and things. Those are always exciting and fun. Um, there's things that happen. God delivers Israel out of Egypt and they travel into the desert. And we haven't got there quite yet, but once we do, we'll watch Ben-Hur, not Ben-Hur, the Ten Commandments. And we'll see it all live with Charlton Heston. But um, they travel into the desert, and there they go to Mount Sinai. Moses ascends the mountain, encounters God, has received the Ten Commandments, and what happens? He comes down the mountain, and what happens? He encounters people who've already broken the commandments. And so what does Moses do? He takes the tablets, he breaks them. He says, you're not even, you, you've already broken them. And a judgment happens, and then Moses ascends the mountain again. And he comes down again with the tablets off the mountain, and his face is shining with the glory of the Lord. And then he leads the people into the desert, where, again, the people of Israel, we haven't got there yet. I'm kind of giving you a, kind of a foresight, children, of what you're going to be studying 
over the next few months. As, as they go into the desert, they keep being tempted and tempted and tempted to walk away from God, and they end up being so uh, caught up in sin that they end up spending 40 years in the desert. And most of the people who came out of Egypt couldn't even go into the promised land, including Moses himself. But Moses had prophesied that there would come one after them, after him, who's greater than himself, who would lead the children of Israel into a greater, into the promised land. And the person who comes after him is named who? Anyone want to take a guess? You don't, you take a stab at it if you like. Anyone want to take a guess? Who brings the children of Israel into the promised land? Joshua. And so Joshua, one of the few men who actually were in Egypt in bondage, came out of Egypt with Moses, had been Moses' kind of right-hand man for a while, goes in after Moses dies and carries the children of Israel through the Jordan River and into the promised land. That is your backstory for what Matthew is going to tell you today. You have to have that because when Matthew is writing as a good Jew, he's writing to Jewish people who know that story. That was part of the story. Matter of fact, everyone at the time of Jesus, I won't say everyone, but a good large chunk of folks during this time is longing for a Messiah, someone to come who would do just that. Save the children of Israel once again, deliver the children of Israel once again out of bondage, out of Roman oppression, and restore the temple back to its promised days of old. They longed for something like an exodus to happen. Because even though there was a temple in Jerusalem, the Shekinah glory, which had traveled with Moses and the children of Israel through the desert in the tabernacle, was not in the temple. They were longing for God to return to Israel. They were longing for God to act. They were longing for God to restore Israel. That's what people wanted. And here comes... Jesus. And Matthew begins to tell the story of Jesus in a very powerful way. Because you see, Matthew 8 is a part of a larger continuation of what's happened in chapters 1 through 7. And so what happens? Jesus, in chapter 4 of Matthew, now we got to skip a few things. There's the birth story of Jesus. I'm not skipping it because it's irrelevant to this. I'm just kind of need to move along so you guys aren't here forever. Jesus, in chapter 4, goes into the Jordan River. The same Jordan River that Joshua, a thousand years before, had led the children of Israel through to come into the promised land. You see, John the Baptist was in the Jordan River not because it was just a good place to go dunk people. John the Baptist, when he was standing on the Jordan River and calling out people to the Jordan River to be baptized, was calling Israel back to the place where their story began. He was saying, come back to the place where God had delivered you. Come back to the place where your story began. Come back to the place where God brought you into the promised land and repent because God's about to do something amazing. And when he is standing there one day, Jesus, who name, whose name is what in Hebrew? No, nope. well, that's a, we're jumping ahead of the story. We'll get there later on. It, you're not wrong because eventually Jesus will start saying some things. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am, before Abraham was, I am. And he connects himself there and he almost, everyone knew what 
he was saying at that point as well. But his name in Hebrew, if you were to say it, is Yahshua. Joshua. Joshua. You see, Jesus' name is the same name as the one who came after Moses and led the children of Israel through the Jordan River into the Promised Land. And those, especially Matthew and those who are reading it, who knew the story of Exodus, would not miss the point that Jesus' name is Yahshua. And so Jesus comes to the Jordan River, goes into the Jordan River in chapter 4, and it says at the end that the Spirit leads Jesus immediately into the desert. And there, Jesus goes into the desert for how many days? Forty days. And Jesus goes into the desert for 40 days and accomplishes in 40 days what Israel could not accomplish in 40 years. He remains faithful to the Father. And he overcomes the devil, and he overcomes temptation, and he comes out of the desert. And the scripture says at the end of chapter 4, the beginning of chapter 5, full of the power of the Spirit. And he begins to go into Israel and begins to preach the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And here, in, the, in chapter 5, going in chapter 6, is where Jesus ascends a mountain. You see, in chapter 8, we read that he comes down that same mountain. But at the beginning, at the end of chapter 5, and the beginning of chapter 6, it's the mountain that he ascends. And it's here on the mountaintop that Jesus delivers what we call the Sermon on the Mount. Now, any good Jewish person who knows the story that I've been telling you just a minute ago out of Exodus knows what happens on the mountaintop. Moses encounters God and delivers the law to the people. Jesus is God, and he is delivering a message, the law, to the people on the mountaintop. This is where we get the blessed are the poor, blessed are the peacemakers. This is where we get instructions on prayer. This is where Jesus delivers some of the great messages and, and teachings that he would then begin to live out for all the world to see. You see, at the beginning of Matthew, Matthew is letting us know that Jesus truly is the exodus that the people of God have longed for since Israel had been in bondage hundreds of years before Christ had come. And not only Israel, but the whole world. He's telling the story of Mount Sinai and the desert and the temptation and, 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 the, and the exodus and all of the failures that went along with that. But instead of it being a story of failure, in Christ, as he gathers up the story of Israel and himself, Christ is victorious and he begins to live that story out faithfully. And it's that backdrop that we should read because this, the, the chapter 8 today, because it's with that backdrop that we should read, not that Moses comes down the mountain to find people not living to the law and causing judgment, but rather Jesus comes down the mountain in chapter 8, and instead of seeing people broken and falling away from God and judging them as Moses did by throwing down the tablets, interestingly enough, that's not what God wanted Moses to do. And so when Moses went back up on the mountain, God said, I'm not going to write him again. you got to do it. You're the one who broke him. Jesus comes down the mountain, not in judgment, 
but in mercy. Not to condemn the world, but to show that through him, the world will be saved. When he came down the mountain, he saw a leper, someone who was supposed to be one of the children of Israel, and yet no one would have approached the leper. He would have been considered unclean, ostracized, set apart. And yet this leper says, heal me. And what does Jesus do? He not only heals him, but he does something unthinkable. He reaches out his hand and he touches a leper. Now, at that point in ancient Israel, first century Palestine, when Jesus does that, Jesus should have been made unclean and Jesus should have been declared unholy and set apart and he himself would have should have become a part of the ostracized community at least until he could show that he wasn't infected with leprosy but instead of Jesus becoming unclean the holiness of Christ flows into the leper and the leper is made whole by Christ instead of Jesus becoming unclean by coming in touch with the leper Jesus restores the leper to wholeness and physical body. And then he says this, go and show yourself to the priest so that you can be restored back to the full community. Be made clean according to the law. Because he wasn't just restoring him to good health. He was wanting to restore him to the fullness of being a participating member of the children of Israel. And something happens after that. The next story that Matthew tells us is not only has Jesus come to restore Israel, but he's come to welcome the whole world in. And that's really what the centurion is about. Here is a man who, by all accounts, should be the enemy of Christ himself. And Jesus has just taught a message to, to love your enemies. Do good to those who persecute you. He's done talked about how we should relate to those who mistreat us up on the mountain. He's delivered the law of the kingdom. And here's a chance for Jesus as a good Jew to send the centurion away, and yet he doesn't. What does Jesus say? Jesus says, let's go to your house. That's unthinkable. Not only is it unthinkable for Jesus to touch a Jewish uh, leper, it's even more unthinkable that Jesus would even go into a house of a Gentile, much less a centurion, and seek to heal one of these Roman servants. It's better, you know, in some eyes, there were zealots at this time who would have thought it's better that the servant die because at least that's one less Gentile oppressing uh, the children in Jerusalem. And yet Jesus says, I'll go to your house. And the centurion says, no, I'm a man under authority. I know that you can speak the word. And if you speak the word, I know my servant will be healed. I'm not even worthy for you to come underneath my roof. But speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. And Jesus says this, I, I marvel at the faith that he has. He says, uh, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from east and west to sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus saw in this centurion the fulfillment of what the prophets saw in the Old Testament, that the whole world would be gathered up 
into the kingdom of heaven. Not just the story of Israel, not just the Jews, but the whole world would be welcomed in. And this centurion's servant was healed in that moment. This is the backdrop of what this story is about. This is the story of Christ as God, taking the story of Israel into himself and living it out and restoring it and renewing it and being a light, not just to Israel, but to the whole world. This is why we read it during the season of Epiphany, that Jesus is the manifestation of God, not only to the Israelites, but to all of the world. And not just to all of the world, but also to the Israelites. Jesus is the hope of all. Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is God from God, light from light, true God from true God, not coming into the world to judge it, but to save it. That's why we worship. That's why we pray. That's why we celebrate as Christians. And I would be remiss if I didn't take this short part at the end to just tell you this one last thing. There's only a couple places in the scripture where Jesus marvels at the faith. This is one of them. The other one is Jesus marvels at the lack of the faith of some of the Israelites in the scriptures. But this should also point out to there, that this, what we read at least with the centurion, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldst come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. For those who've been here at the, at the Advent for a while, we know that when we come to divine liturgy, that's what we say right before we receive Holy Communion. When Bo or turns around and says, Behold the Lamb of God, he then says, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldst come under a roof. And we say, But speak the word only, and my soul shall be healed. And we say it three times. Why do we say that? Because we should be thinking like the centurion. Have the humility of the centurion. And have the faith of the centurion to come to the Holy Eucharist and receive the body and blood of Christ. We should have that because it's that faith which Jesus looks at and marvels and heals all those who come to him with. That faith, the faith of the centurion, is how we should approach the Holy Eucharist when we come forward. And that's why we say, but speak the word only and my soul shall be healed. We should approach the Holy Eucharist as the centurion approached Jesus, knowing our unworthiness, but having faith in the one we know who can heal us. To the glory of God the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And we all say, Amen. Talks at Advent. Homilies and Reflections Given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox Mission in Atlanta, Georgia.